Well, thank you, Claire, for that reading, covering a lot of ground in Luke's gospel. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, your word is precious. You are precious, and in fact, this time together this morning is precious. So would you please help us pay attention to what you're saying? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the most expensive bottles of wine ever sold. We'll see if we can bring up a photo. There it is. One of the most expensive bottles of wine ever sold is a six-liter bottle of the Settling Wines 2019 Glass Slipper Vineyard Cabernet Sauvignon, which sold for a cool, climate-controlled one million U.S. dollars at auction a couple years ago. Some of you are already thinking, what a waste of money. While others may be contemplating, I wouldn't mind trying a sip of that. And at over a thousand bucks a sip, we'll all pass. Some people would see this wine as a sign of flourishing, life to the full, while others would see it as the road to failure, moral, liver, whatever, one entity, two very different outcomes. There's something similar that's happening in one of the first parables that Jesus tells in Luke's gospel. It also concerns wine, new wine, and the proper way to handle it. Take a look there in the middle of our reading at verses 37 and 38. Jesus says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins the wine will run out and the wine skins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wine skins. Jesus portrays himself as the new wine, which requires an appropriate, a fitting reception. This morning in Luke's gospel, we'll see that some people are on board with that and some most definitely are not. That's what Luke draws our attention to today as he gives us this picture of Jesus' ministry in full flight. Last week, we considered Jesus' mission. We saw that Jesus is God's sent son who gives priority to gospel proclamation. What does that look like in practice today? We will see Jesus' ministry in light of his mission. Here's a snapshot. You'll find this outline in your service bulletins as well. Jesus' ministry in light of his mission, what's he doing? He's calling for allegiance. He's curing from affliction. And he's confronting false assumptions. Here's where this is going to lead us. This is the phrase, then, that we are going to keep coming back to again and again today. 
is that contact with Jesus will either restore you or ruin you. As Jesus' public ministry is really getting into gear, he is beginning now to fulfill his destiny. Flip back a few pages in your Bible, scroll back on your phone to Luke chapter 2, verses 34. Luke chapter 2, verse 34 Remember Simeon's prophecy as he held the infant Jesus in his arms. He said, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. Some will fall, others will rise. Contact with Jesus will either restore you or it will ruin you. We'll see that play out in those Jesus calls, in those Jesus cures, in those Jesus confronts. And then finally, we're going to bring that home to ourselves as well. So number one, calling for allegiance. Last week, we heard about Jesus healing in Simon's house. Today, we read about Jesus teaching in Simon's boat. Simon had been fishing all night. He'd caught nothing but a golden duck. And Jesus says, head out to sea and try again. Simon is skeptical, but he obeys Jesus' word. He and his mates have another go and bring in an unimaginable haul. So many fish, their nets and boats can barely contain them. And something about this moment is revelatory for Simon. It is like a lightning bolt to his heart. He is struck with ultimate reality. See how he reacts there in chapter 5, verse 8. What does he do? He fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Simon glimpses the the chasm that exists between himself and Jesus. Jesus is pure, powerful perfection, and Simon falls far short of that. He realizes just how ruined he is before Jesus. And perhaps God in his kindness, friends, perhaps God in his kindness has brought you to a similar place as well. For it is God's grace that allows us to perceive the seriousness of our sinfulness. Simon knows he is unworthy, he is undone, he is broken. And Jesus starts putting the pieces back together. Don't be afraid, he says to Simon in verse 10. From now on, you will fish for people. Simon, James, and John drag their boats out of the water, leave them where they lay, and follow Jesus. Did you know that Jesus loves to lead sinful people? to new life in him. That's pretty cool. 
A while later, Jesus finds a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax booth. Levi, in the eyes of many, the scum of the earth, cashed up in an ultimately dead-end job, probably has to pay to have friends, but he can afford that. Jesus speaks two words to him, follow me. If anyone else but Jesus says that, Levi at least doubles their tax, right? Notice what happens, though. Chapter 5, verse 28. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. There is no hint that he even hesitates. What is going on here? Jesus is taking the initiative to call real people with real problems to himself. He's not forcing anything. Levi wants to follow Jesus. He holds a lavish banquet for Jesus, and it's at this party that Jesus articulates his mission in a fresh way. Verses 31 and 32, Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who did Jesus come for? He did not come to make those who are good at keeping rules feel better about themselves. No. He's after hopeless humans like us, whose only hope is him, the one who turns us from sin to himself. Days later, morning dawns in chapter 6, verse 13. Jesus called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. A dozen people gathered in for the sake of Jesus' mission. And notice that Luke records their names, but not their resumes. Why? Because their significance and their suitability for the job that Jesus has called them for lies in one simple fact. It's nothing to do with themselves. It's all about the fact that Jesus has called them to himself. Take Bartholomew, for example. Bartholomew. What did he do before meeting Jesus? I have no idea. His name sounds like he kept bees and sold honey or something. Not bad, but I'm sure it paled in comparison to joining Jesus. So friends, let me put this before you. Your life will never be whole until you respond to Jesus' call to follow him. You put that off, you ignore that, you disregard that, you will always be missing out on something. But when you say yes to following Jesus, well, that is the way towards true wholeness and restoration. There's one more name I'd like to point out in that list. It's the last name in Luke's list, Judas Iscariot. If we zoom in for a second at verse 16, we see, notice this, that the text does not say that Judas Iscariot was a traitor, but rather 
he became a traitor. How did that happen? How did that happen? His loyalty did not last. You can give the initial appearance of allegiance to Jesus, but where is your heart? Where is your heart? Judas Iscariot started off close to Jesus, but sadly he didn't stay there. Contact with Jesus will either restore you or it will ruin you. Number two, curing from affliction. Jesus met a man covered in leprosy. That was a skin disease that not only took away your health, it took you away from your family and friends because it was so contagious. Lepers were loners. And when he encounters Jesus, the leprous man falls down before him and begs, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Check out what Jesus does in chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, leprosy loses. Affliction flees. It's unheard of. I mean, some people catch a cold just by looking at a tissue. But Jesus makes contact with this leprous man with contagion, with impurity. And yet instead of being infected, Jesus takes the sickness away and he makes the leper clean. Jesus not only restores his health, he goes on to restore him to community. One day, Jesus was teaching in a house, healing the sick. Four men want to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus, but it's packed. Standing room only, so in one of the more creative expressions of faith, they engage in some strategic demolition and lower their mate right through the roof at Jesus' feet. Jesus is unfazed and acts like it is situation normal. But what he says, what he says, though, it is so unusual. Friend, your sins are forgiven. The obvious problem is paralysis. The deeper problem is sin. What's the similarity between paralysis and sin? You are powerless to do anything to change your condition. The religious leaders, they scowl, they silently scoff. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus wants to make it crystal clear who he is and what he's come to do. It's a brilliant verse. Chapter 5, verse 24. Have a look. I want you to know, Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he told the paralyzed man, hop up and head home, and he did. Carried in on his bed, he now carries his bed out with him, walking and leaping and praising God. Not only restored to physical function, but more importantly, 
He is restored to relationship with God because Jesus has forgiven his sins. One Sabbath day, Jesus was surprised teaching in the synagogue. A man is there with a shriveled right hand. Surely he's self-conscious, frustrated, incapacitated in a significant way. Jesus has been catching flack from the religious leaders for what he's doing on the Sabbath. He tells the man to stand up in front of everyone, and he asks, what is right to do on this day? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He casts his gaze across everyone and then says to the man, stretch out your hand. The man obeys. And notice the end of verse 10. His hand was completely restored. What was an embarrassment is now a constant reminder of Jesus' saving power. Jesus is bold in his compassion, curing from affliction. It is unpopular, isn't it, with the elite? But it is so necessary for the needy. Contact with Jesus will either restore you, or in the case of our third point, it will ruin you. Number three, confronting false assumptions. How do you go with confrontation and conflict? I guarantee none of us navigate it as well as Jesus. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they pop up often in this section. Safe to say they're not best buds with Jesus. And through his words and his actions, Jesus attempts to confront and correct what they have wrongly assumed. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they are dubious about Jesus' identity. They are skeptical about his ability. They are cynical about his influence, and they are hostile towards his actions. This is telling. I want to show you how their disposition towards Jesus changes through this section. So stay with me here. Would you start with me in chapter 5, verse 17? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law converge on Jesus, and it seems that there's a sense of curiosity. They have come from all over the place to check him out. And then we go to verse 21. And they begin thinking to themselves, hey, who is this guy who's talking like he's God? In verse 30, they start to complain to Jesus' disciples. Why are you all hanging out with the riffraff, with the dodgy folks? In chapter 6, verse 1, they now start to openly question and challenge Jesus. Why are you breaking the religious law? And then in verse 7 of chapter 6, they actively look for a reason to accuse Jesus. 
And finally, in verse 11, they are furious and they begin planning together what they might do to Jesus. Do you see that progression, how that evolves in the passage? The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they are constantly in contact with Jesus. Though, instead of drawing closer to Jesus, what do they do? They move further and further away. And so let me ask then, are are we at risk of following in the footsteps of those religious leaders? There is a danger that our assumptions about Jesus become accusations against Jesus. We adopt a belligerent posture towards Jesus if he fails to fit our mold, if he doesn't fit our notion of who he should be. And when that happens, it's tempting to reason, well, if Jesus does not fit the box that I've made for him, then I'll take that box I've made for him, I'll put him in that box, and I'll bury him six feet deep. Extreme, but not unheard of. We are so good at at accumulating all sorts of assumptions and opinions about Jesus, but we are less good, maybe we're actually not very good, at letting our assumptions be replaced by convictions that are grounded in what Jesus has said and done in Scripture? How are you going at letting your assumptions be replaced with convictions that come from the Word of God? Jesus confronts the false assumptions of the religious leaders, though things they are moving towards a more cataclysmic confrontation. In fact, this will lead to Jesus confronting the cross. The storm that begins to gather in verse 11, that is unleashed when Jesus is arrested, condemned, and crucified. And yet it is Jesus' death that cures our affliction of sin and makes it possible for us to truly follow him. Contact with Jesus. It will either restore you or it will ruin you. So as we wrap up, let me make a few comments then about our lives in light of Jesus' ministry. We've met a whole range of people in this section of Luke today. I know it's been quick, but I wonder which one of them do you identify with the most? For me, it's probably Simon. I appreciate, I really relate to how profoundly aware he is of his inadequacy before Jesus. And I love how that is no obstacle to God's good purposes, though. But rather, Simon is exactly the sort of person that God loves to call into his family and transform to his glory. That's a work of grace, isn't it? And it begins with meeting Jesus. And then it continues 
through sticking with Jesus. Contact with Jesus, it won't leave you unchanged. You may have picked up that Jesus brings up the topic of sin again and again as well. Sin, it's, it's our constant inclination towards self-righteousness and God-ignorance. Why is Jesus' ministry so essential? Why is his mission so critical? It is because sin is terminal. So I'll ask you, do you acknowledge that your sin is a problem? A problem that Jesus can deal with? Or do you have a problem with Jesus and how he wants to deal with you and your sin? Self-proclaimed righteousness, that is a one-way road to destruction. But realizing that your self-righteousness is in fact a symptom of the sickness of sin and then going to Dr. Jesus for the cure, well, that is the path to true restoration. Contact with Jesus will either restore you or ruin you. Going back then to Jesus' parable of the wineskins, where we started. It's a preventative picture. Be careful. Jesus cannot be shoved into pre-existing categories. He is the new wine which requires an appropriate, a fitting reception. It must be handled appropriately, accepted on his terms, not ours. Both Jesus' mission and his ministry, they are new milestone moments in salvation history. Plenty of people are intrigued, even filled with awe. We've seen all sorts of reactions. But there's only so long, friends, you can stay in that space of amazement before you must land in either a place of allegiance to Jesus or antagonism towards Jesus. Contact with Jesus will either restore you or ruin you. Finally, we'll wrap up here. You may have noticed in our reading today that prayer, prayer is vital to Jesus' ministry. He can do without the adulation. He can do without the fawning crowds. But he cannot do without a relationship of dependence on his Father. And so it's only fitting then that we pray and express our dependence on God as we close. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, but for your grace to us in him, we could only expect ruin and be without a hope of restoration. So please take our hand and let the scales fall from our eyes that we may see Jesus clearly and follow him faithfully. Amen.